about 10, maybe 15 years ago, I was on a cycling trip and this was a like a multi-day cycling coast to coast. We were cycling from the west coast of England up in the, like the Pennines area across the country to the west coast. And we had all of our stuff with us on our, bar, on our like bikes on our bags and we were, you know, cycling over the moorland. So it was quite hard work, lots of hills, lots of ups and downs. And there was this minute, this bit in this window on about, I think it was on like day two, of like a three-day cycle or something, when the books, the guidebooks all said, this is the hardest part. This is the part that's really big, steep hills across the Pennines. Like, this is the tough section. Brace yourself. We get about an hour into a two-hour tough section, and I get a phone call. And the phone call is to tell me that I haven't got a job. And the job was what I thought was my dream job at the time. And it was a phone call to say that I hadn't got it. As I hung up the phone, my friend who I was cycling with turned to me and said, uh, we've been cycling in the wrong direction. So we've just done an hour of cycling across the Pennines in completely the wrong direction. And the only thing we could do was to turn around, retrace our steps, do those same hills all over again, and then start the tough section. Now, you can guarantee that with all of the feeling of this job, through the tears and the sweat, I beasted it up those hills. All of my frustration, all of my angst, all of my uncertainty was coming out in the power of my legs. And the reason why it's even more significant is because I really thought God had led me to this job. I'd left another job. I just finished a master's um, working on uh, conflict in sub-Saharan Africa. I really felt that I was being led to go back to Uganda, where I'd previously lived and worked, and to be working in the field of post-conflict reconstruction. And this was the job that was going to get me. And I thought, how have I got it so wrong? Like, I was literally and metaphorically cycling in the wrong direction. How did I get this so wrong? And all of the frustration, all the desperation, and I felt totally defeated. So the trip ended, um, and I had no job, and I wasn't sure what to do, but I was still sure that I'd heard God. And I, um, I felt God say, if you just trust me, I will bring it to you. And through the most bizarre, which is another story for another time, the most bizarre series of events, I ended up meeting somebody who had heard of me through some other thing, was chatting to me about something else. Then it turned out, ran an organization in Uganda working in post-conflict reconstruction. And within a month, I was living in Uganda working for this organization. And it was the perfect job for me. And it was this experience of going here was this moment where I felt defeated. I, had, I felt like I've just been going in the wrong direction. I now have no clue about anything. This total tragedy, total defeat. And it became not just turned into something that was okay, but turned into, redeemed into something that was even better. And we're in this sermon series that is looking at the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. And today, we're looking at victory, We're looking at the idea that Jesus, that through Jesus, something that would seem to be the greatest tragedy can become the greatest triumph. Through the victory of Jesus on the cross, all evil, all anger, all hatred, all the death, the devil, all darkness, all sin, all of it has been conquered. Jesus has won. He is victorious. And last week, we were looking at how through the, the decreation after um, the fall, 
sin entered the world and we live under the curse of sin, but this gift of forgiveness that is offered to us is a, is a way for us to be free from that curse, to live in the freedom of forgiveness. And the beauty of the gospel last week was that we can be free from the curse of sin. And the beauty of the gospel this week is that it doesn't end with us, that it is about the restoration and redemption of the whole of creation. Jesus said in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief, the devil, does only one thing, brings destruction. This father of lies brings, he kills, he seeks to kill and destroy, bringing destruction and darkness. And the victory that Jesus won on the cross, the victory that we live in the light of, is, is one of abundance, the restoration of all of creation. I'm going to look at that victory through three features of it. And the first one is that it is a subversive victory. Jesus won victory by becoming nothing. So Paul writes in Philippians, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the Jewish people were longing for a king, a king like the ones they had of old, a king who could free them from the impression that they lived in in Rome. They wanted a military leader with a big army, a nice white horse who would rise, raise up people, raise up an army and make a lot of noise, defeat these conquering Romans. They longed for a worldly victory. And instead, they got a king who set them free from the power of darkness, who rode in on a donkey, hung out with singers, sinners and outcasts, who preached against power, who modelled a life of humility, who washed his disciples' feet, who was captured and crucified by the very Roman soldiers that the Jewish people were hoping he'd rise up against. But then, of course, the story didn't end there. He rose from the grave. And death on the cross wasn't the end of the story because the story that was being written wasn't the one that they were expecting, but it was one that was so much bigger, a global cosmic story. Something else was happening. The victory that Jesus won wasn't just about this moment in time. It wasn't one empire, one worldly empire against another. It was about the conquering of the whole forces of evil, the restoration of the whole of history, the, the return of the cosmos. And so Paul writes in Colossians, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers of darkness were triumphed over at the cross. Jesus won this victory over all of pain, all suffering, the light Won. And the victory itself was won because Jesus became nothing, because he took on flesh, because he humbled himself. It was a subversive victory, won on a donkey and not on a horse, won by love and not by power. So the first thing is that the victory was subversive. And the second thing is that the victory was total. 
There's an idea in um, war theory of the decisive victory. It's the turning point in a conflict or in a war when something happens or a, a battle is won, and as a result of this particular moment, everything changes. So in 1066, the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest changed the history of England. Uh, any Hamilton fans in the room? Thank you very much. <clears throat> the Battle of Yorktown, 1781. When Washington and Rochambeau laid siege against the British army, this was a decisive victory that changed the outcome of the American Revolutionary. And points for anyone who can tell me which, the title of the song that this battle is sung about in. Yeah, what's the title of the song? No. Come on, I believe, I believe someone can do it. If it was Pete, P, I'd be singing it for you. Yes! And the world turned upside down. Well done, Debbie. So this moment, this moment, or this battle, the Battle of Yorktown, is a moment when, in the context of the American Revolution, the world turned upside down. And when we have this story of creation, decreation, recreation, the moment of the resurrection is the moment of decisive victory against the enemy, and the world turned upside down. And so C.S. Lewis writes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, at the moment when, um, when Aslan as the lion has been killed and then comes back to life, and the, the girls, Susan and Lucy, are asking the lion, what, what's, what happened? And Aslan says, if the white witch could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time began, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start to work backwards. Death itself worked backwards. The world turned upside down. This is the type of victory that we're talking about. It's not a skirmish in, in a series of battles. It's not, it's, not, it's not some middle ground. It is a decisive and total victory. John writes in Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And this is the promise. This is the promise of the victory that we live in. This is our destination. And as I was thinking about this, I was just feeling this sense of, you know, there will be those of us who've come in this today and we feel anything other than this. You know, that we feel we are living much more in the reality of a tragedy than a triumph. And I think one of the invitations for us today is to experience something of this. That where there are parts of our lives, maybe places in us, things that we see in the world around us, people that we care for, that we are desperately longing for God to move in their lives, that there is something of an invitation to, to see that destination that we're going towards and experience something of it now to see something of that break in. Paul wrote in Ephesians, he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's a lot of alls and everythings and every ways in that passage. This is, this is a fullness victory. This is a The darkness is defeated. Death is conquered. Sin is no more. The grave is empty. It's a total victory. Jesus is on the throne. There's no middle ground. There's no a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He's kind of on the throne, but sometimes he's not. He is on the throne. He has won. And yet this brings us to the third feature of this victory. It's in breaking. It's a subversive victory, won through love and humility. It's a total victory. The powers were disarmed, triumphed over, but it is an inbreaking victory that we don't yet see the fullness of. We live in the light of the resurrection and we see glimpses of glory breaking in, but we still live in a world where there is pain and suffering. You might have seen on um, the KXC Instagram um, earlier this week, um, there was a little shout out to a community that's been developing within the refugee and asylum seeking community of King's Cross. It was something that began quite simply um, a while ago. A few folk within KXC knew that there was quite a few asylum seekers that live in, that are placed in some of the hotels in the King's Cross area. And they thought, why don't we, wouldn't it be great if we could just open up King's House, you know, Saturday morning, we'll have a little cafe, anyone can come and just hang out. And that kind of grew a little bit over time and more and more people started to come and hang out. And at the same time, the Bridge the Gap um, community was developing. This is on Tuesday nights. It's a football club. Um, Guys from within KXC play football against each other. They invite their mates from work and their community, their friends and family, and sort of get to know each other. And some of the asylum seekers were coming along as well. And suddenly that was grown and grown and grown. And then we now have a whole hour that is dedicated and sort of subsidized for the people who live in the hotels um, to play football together. And at the same time, the King's Cross Baptist Union had heard that we had this sort of like flourishing community just sort of starting within the refugee and asylum seekers. And they said, would you be interested in co-hosting some English language classes with us? And we said, sure, why not? So we started um, hosting some English language classes downstairs on a Thursday evening in King's House. And that has grown so much that they have moved to a bigger room than a bigger room. And now they're into two rooms with a basic first level of English and a more advanced level of, of English classes. And so through these three moments throughout the week, we now have something like 50 to 100 people each week who live in the the asylum hotels around the corner that are coming to hang out with people from within the King's Cross community and getting to know each other. And then about two weeks ago, two of the guys that are part of this community got their asylum petition approved, meaning that they got refugee status, um, so they could now start working, and they can move out of the hotel and were put in a flat. And it turned out that, randomly, these two guys were put in the same flat together. So KXC, we've got a little care fund that's like a little bit of money that anybody within the community can ask if they need a bit of financial help. So from the care fund, we took them shopping and bought them some plates and like knives and forks and stuff. Tiny, really insignificant stuff. And yet it's turning the world upside down. It's changing lives. And this is what it means, the inbreaking kingdom. Every time you love somebody, 
Every time an act of kindness or service, every time you pray for somebody, every time you pray healing for somebody, every time you walk into the church and lift your hands up in worship, the kingdom of God breaks in. And we see a glimpse of the glory, the story that is painted in Revelation. And it might sometimes seem slightly pointless, that when the scale of the issue can seem so huge that we would care about these tiny stories. But actually, that's the only thing there is to care about, that these tiny stories all make up this bigger motif of victory breaking in through love and service and kindness. Karl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Every time we pray, every time we worship, every time we love someone that we find difficult to love, every time we serve someone, we're declaring the kingdom of God has won. The victory is here and we are bringing in, we're seeing those glimpses of glory breaking in. Walter Brueggemann, who's one of my um, favourite theologians, uh, says this, the victory of God in our time over this deathly idolatry is hidden from us as God's decisive victory is always hidden from us. We do not know exactly when and where the victory has been wrought. It is hidden in the weakness of neighbourly love, in the foolishness of mercy, in the vulnerability of compassion, in the staggering alternatives of forgiveness and generosity, which permit new life to emerge in situations of despair and brutality. Our faith has always been a riddle that it is only through death that new life can be. It's only through grieving that we experience joy. It's only through anguish that we see new life. It's only through lament that we see healing. It's in mourning that we receive joy. And that's what we're invited into today. That's what the victory of Jesus is about. It's saying it's, saying, it's coming before a, a God who gave everything of himself who emptied himself, became nothing, so that he might die on a cross, so that he might raise, rise again, so that we might know that victory. And the inbreaking of this subversive kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, this inbreaking, is the glimpses of glory that we're invited into. So we're going to take some time um, to pray into that. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about today um, and that we sort of uh, we touched on in, in the other services is, is, is that idea that there's an invitation for those of us who really feel that we are living more in the tragedy than the triumph. That there are places in our life, places in the world where we really do experience the, the fact that we live in a broken world, that there is pain and suffering around us. And the invitation is that we would acknowledge that, that we would lament that, and that we would then imagine a different alternative. Walter Brueggemann has this idea of um, the prophetic imagination, and the idea behind it is that we, we can't believe for a different future until we can confront the reality of the pain we experience. So when we sit in the pain, when we rest in the lament, and we go, oh, this is not how it's supposed to be, this was not the world that God created. He created a good world. And the pain and suffering that we feel angry about, we're supposed to feel angry about it. But we're not supposed to stay in that place. 
we usher in a prophetic imagination. We usher in hope when we hold out the victory, when we hold out the goodness of the kingdom of God.